together, we wrote the guidelines and then we reviewed them. So our experience was starting kind of from a sense of desperation and really ending with a closer community of people who are trying to solve the problem. Welcome to the Digital Threshold Podcast, where we explore all the ways modern venues and facilities are reimagining their arrival experience. Welcome to Digital Threshold, episode one. We have three excellent guests today, three professionals who have helped reopen New York City. As we all know, much of the country has shut down in the COVID era. In the case of New York City, about 60 million tourists visited the city. In the three months ended June 30th, there was about a 90% decline in those visiting New York. It's been hit very, very hard. Tourism represents almost $50 billion to the New York City economy. Reopening New York City has been very important for those venues and those people who live there. As I said, we have an opportunity to talk to three different executives who have played a role in reopening their specific institutions in New York. The Metropolitan Museum of Art, Lincoln Center, and the American Museum of Natural History represent about 16 million tourists a year before COVID hit. I wanna start with Lisa Schroeder. Lisa works at Lincoln Center and she's been leading the reopening committee that has been working to reopen the various venues and constituencies at Lincoln Center. Lincoln Center is about a 16 acre campus with 11 different constituent or resident organizations with about 5 million visitors a year. Lisa's been doing a lot of work across the organization to do planning around that. Lisa, can you share some of the experience and the planning you've been doing as you've thought about the different organizations, different groups of people and different venues within the Lincoln Center campus? Sure, thank you, Anil. It's a pleasure to be here. And yes, so the one thing we have in common with 11 different resident organizations at Lincoln Center is that we are dedicated to the performing arts. And unfortunately, the performing arts is dead without an audience. So our challenge was to come together and talk about how can we move forward in this environment. Luckily, we had each other, and this gave us really a common thread. I think one thing we all feel in New York City is the strong sense of community, both in our small groups, like at Lincoln Center, among 11 of us, and in the large group, right? We all want places to open, and we all want to be safe. We take a lot of pride in that. So uh, 11 organizations came together and said, you know, what can we do to make a plan? We can open outdoors first, we have 16 acres. Let's let people come back to our 16 acres and enjoy the beauty of just being there and provide what we can. And then how do we open our offices and studios? We have the Juilliard um, College and we have the School of American Ballet and, and these dancers and students really need to come back. And then down the road, how will we open these performing arts and venues, which um, you know, are not going to open for a while. We're not going to sit in a room with 2,000 people listening to a live performance for a while. So, but we did take it in those stages so that at least we could have some hope to do some amazing things outside, provide some, some dances and, and do some live streams, which we're doing um, lots of different things outside. And the beauty also was we could come together in community. And really everybody was so willing to do the research um, people came and gave us advice from different hospitals in town, different attorneys in town. Um, so we together we wrote the guidelines and then we reviewed them. 
So our experience was starting kind of from a sense of desperation and really ending with a closer community of people who are trying to solve the problem. Great, thank you, Lisa. And we have Keith Pruitt. Keith has a long history with the US Secret Service protecting very important people. And now he's taken that experience and over the last few years been protecting very important art and, and staff and visitors that come to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. As many of you may know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art is 150 years old. Uh, I believe it's this year, Keith. Um, it's the largest art museum in the US and has traditionally had about six and a half million visitors. Um, very large campus, very large uh, number of people coming through there. Keith, you and your organization have done different things to plan sort of over the years. And in fact, uh, last fall, you did a tabletop exercise to plan for potential um, issues that might affect the museum. Can you talk a little bit about the tabletop exercise and how that helped you plan for the pandemic that yet was not quite on the horizon here in the US? Well, thank you, Anil. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, join this forum and speak to uh, the listeners. Uh, and you're right, uh, we did have, ironically, we did uh, have a tabletop exercise that took place back in November this year uh, without any foresight uh, in, as to what the future was holding. Uh, but that tabletop exercise encompassed the following uh, scenarios. It uh, encompassed a structural collapse, uh, simply because the Met is a, a location that has two million square feet and there's always a construction project going on uh, within the Met. Uh, obviously an active shooter scenario, and then also a scenario uh, involving a pandemic or um, uh, chemical biological hazard. So from there, uh, we uh, worked out the variables, if you will, and, and delineated roles and responsibilities throughout the entirety of the museum and who would take the lead on the, uh, on the planning activities. Uh, we actually had a chance to put that plan into work uh, in, in early March this year, and thank goodness we did. Uh, the one thing uh, this uh, pandemic scenario has, uh, has definitely validated for us is, um, you know, you have to have a comprehensive emergency preparedness and business continuity plan, uh, for sure. And no matter how you plan, there's always going to be something that doesn't always go according to plan. So we learned significant lessons from, uh, from, that, uh, from that episode. And there's some specific things that you had um, learned in the tabletop, but then as the actual pandemic hit, they were different, right? And caused you to sort of adjust or modify some of the, the plans that you thought you had. Inevitably, when you, you get into it, right, things are slightly different than you might have expected. Are there a couple of lessons you've, you've taken away from that from a planning perspective? Well, absolutely. I don't think any of us had planned on the magnitude and the gravity of what this pandemic brought, up, brought on board. Uh, this is a community, uh, a workforce of over 2,300 employees. That shrunk down uh, significantly to about a total of 120 uh, to take care of that 2 million square feet for the obvious reasons. Uh, there, therein lies the challenges. Uh, obviously, you're concerned about your critical infrastructure, your key assets, and also just the basic operations of, of the institution, you know, getting the lights turned on and, uh, and the, and, and the uh, systems going. Uh, because you have to be aware of your of your environment and and, uh, and uh, uh, controls, if you will, for the museum uh, to maintain the integrity of the collection. Yeah. Thank you, Keith. And our third our third guest is Tom Slade. So Tom has nearly thirty years in law enforcement, and then you know many years of I think about twenty years, Tom, at the American Museum of Natural History, leading the security team there. Um, the museum itself is actually one hundred and fifty one years old, a year older than than the Met. 
Um, both institutions have been a, there a long time. They've actually been through um, the Spanish flu as part of their history, uh, as it indicates. Um, and the American Museum of Natural History is big. It's 26 interconnected buildings, it's four city blocks, and about 5 million uh, visitors there. So Tom, you've, you've been at the museum a long time. It's a very large place. In fact, there's lots of different constituents there. There's a lot of international folks that come there. You have a lot of experience with other museums sort of working with them or talking with them. You know, what is your perspective on planning? How, once COVID started hitting, you know, how did, how did you and how did the museum staff and leadership start planning um, for COVID? How did they start planning for the reopening around COVID? And can you just talk us through a little bit of some of the inner workings in the conference rooms and the boardrooms there? Well, thank you, Anil, for uh, inviting me to this. Very much like Keith, when this struck, um, we did not perceive it to be a six or seven month issue. Um, we went to our emergency management plan, which did cover, and continuity of business, it did cover closures of the museum for periods of time. We had a plan for a 15-day closure, a 30-day closure, which involved a lot of issues with respect to human resources and payroll. Uh, those were all designed around situations where we'd have to close, whether it be an attack or, or something going on. Um, so we implemented that pretty quickly, um, and that allowed us to keep people on payroll and to start to start our planning process. Um, it obviously was not exactly what we needed for a shutdown, which would go on for months. So when we started to realize uh, that this was going to continue to go on, we had a shift into somewhat uncharted waters. Uh, we did put together, as the other speaker said, a plan which involved represents some all visitor facing um, operations uh, to start looking at what we would do when we reopen, although we didn't think it would be six months later, um, and to break that up into little pieces, whether it be a training piece, whether it be the social distancing piece, whether it be training employees when they return from furlough. Um, the team broke them up and different parts of the plan were led by different components, whether it be legal or human resources security. And what we did is pretty much what everybody else did. We started to feed up to the senior executive level, proposed plans, which were then approved or tweaked, and then came back to us for uh, implementation. The one thing I'd have to say we all came to realize was the complexity of planning for a COVID shutdown and meeting government requirements so that our employees, when they return and our visitors would be safe, was more daunting than we thought. And it took a little bit more time than we thought walking through 2 million square feet of buildings like we all did, trying to determine office locations and occupancies. We have a lot of educational classes that are here we knew would be coming back. So the, the, the only point I would make there was while we felt it was very successful, it did take longer than we thought. So if you're in, a, in a, an institution which was in the process of planning to reopen, I would just recommend that you start as soon as possible because it does take quite a period of time, even with all the significant resources and talented people we had, it just takes a long time. No, that's great, Tom. So I wanna, I wanna just talk a little bit more about one of the points you made, which was you had, a, you, you had an emergency preparedness plan. I, would, I, would, I think all three of you had an emergency preparedness plan, but you didn't expect it to be six months. Um, I'm sure nobody foresaw how it played out and how it continues to play out. So it is a very, uncertain environment, both in terms of the time frame and the severity. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty that you need to sort of plan around. And then as you know, Keith and Lisa were talking about, there's a lot of different constituents, whether it's different constituent groups 
or even just functional teams. There's an HR team, there's a finance team, there's a performing or an arts team, there's a, a facilities team. Um, Lisa, maybe you can just talk a little bit about how you work through that. How can you plan with so much uncertainty in terms of how the pandemic played out and how it might play down and all these different groups that have, um, they might have somewhat different goals, all, of, all goals of reopening, but somewhat different perspectives sort of on and balancing different factors. Sure. You know, we were really helped by starting with existing guidelines. And even though the guidelines change from the CDC and the NIH and the city and state, at least it gave us a framework to start with. And so we also found, and as I was mentioning community before, that everyone was willing to take a piece of it and say, okay, you know, what are the best practices on managing the office space and people really doing a deep dive into the guidelines there. And, and I do really appreciate our city and state officials for creating those because that gave us a place to start and to say, you know, how can we comply with this? And then how can we use technology? And we, we were able to find um, these devices, these certified devices, which would allow us to both do the health screening and take temperatures in a way that was very seamless coming in. And, and I think we are all looking for new technologies to use, not only now, but in the future to help us. Um, so you know, we started with the guidelines and then we did research in different areas. And like I said, brought in people to help us. And I just want to say to Keith that I went to the Met the day that it opened. And I'm sure I was like the thousands of other people, like tears were in my eyes because just to finally see the beauty of art again, it's almost like you don't know what you missed until you have it again. And I'm sure we'll all feel that way when we can go to a performing art uh, institution again. Um, but all of this work is appreciated by the community and each other for us just to bring back whatever we can bring back as we can. No, I think that's a very important uh, point, Lisa, is that um, I started by talking about the visitors and the impact on, on the city. That's at a macro level, but it happens at an individual level. It happens at a personal level, right? We individually go and listen to um, the Philharmonic. We individually go and look at the whale exhibit at the museum or um, the art that's in, in the Met. So it's, it's really something that's been missing in the city. Um, so let's start talking about that. Let's start talking a little bit sort of beyond planning. Now, each of you have to some extent have reopened um, to some or large extent, reopened your institutions. Can you talk a little bit about some of the tactics that you've used, some of the specific protocols you've put in place? And Lisa, you touched on it a little bit, some of the technology. So we've, we've seen a lot about thermal cameras and ticket, touchless ticketing and lots of different things. So I think it would be really interesting to hear how each of you are reopening some of the things that are different um, or, or new uh, relative to you know, pre-COVID. Um, so Keith, maybe we'll start with you. If you can just talk a little bit about some of the specifics in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts reopening plan and, and how they're going. Well, thank you. Uh, first and foremost, um, we internally leveraged a task force uh, coordination effort, if you will, to look at it from an enterprise perspective and what we were going to do, whether it was trends, tactics, technology, that task force looked at everything from soup to nuts. Externally, uh, working with good partners like Tom and Lisa and some of the other cultural institutions, we actually formed like a, a cultural institution uh, security consortium, if you will, uh, to help us uh, identify what were the best and better practices out there uh, that we could leverage uh, with one another. Um, and, and trust me, in, in, 
the one thing that at least I've learned uh, during this process is that no individual or institution has a monopoly on good ideas uh, when it comes to these things. And so there's always a better way to do things uh, out there. Um, from a technology perspective, um, uh, as Tom uh, uh, alluded to earlier, we've all looked at uh, thermographic uh, cameras and uh, temperature taking devices and contact tracing uh, uh, you know, platforms and protocols. Um, it's amazing how, how many um, organizations and vendors became experts in, in pandemics uh, you know, the day after uh, uh, everything shut down. So we had to be very deliberate in looking at those, uh, but quite honestly, uh, from leveraging our strategic partnerships with, with Tom and the others, uh, that's where we got our best, uh, our best uh, information. Yeah, great. Thank you, Keith. Tom, how about you? How, what, what did you guys do at the Museum of Natural History? What are some of the specific changes that you made? Um, and what's your experience been as you made those changes? Yeah, I'd like to first follow up a little bit what Keith just said. Um, there were a lot of companies that rushed to the market with all sorts of devices that were designed for COVID. So we had to be careful because you're dealing with a lot of new products as to what products can actually deliver on what they say. Very much like after 9-11, when ballers became the big thing in New York City, we rushed out to buy ballers, as did many institutions, only to find out those products were rushed to market, had not been adequately tested, and ultimately failed and had to be replaced. So when we looked at technology, we looked at it with that kind of perspective. And we did, as Keith said, and the other museums have done, we did do uh, infrared uh, screening for cameras. Um, we have an evolved system, so we pretty much have a touchless uh, weapon search. Uh, the only change we made there was to make sure that the bag checks, are, when we have to do a bag check, are done manually by using sticks and through plastic so that the guards don't have to touch something of that nature. Uh, on the other side, the non-security side, the museum went to, as many places did, you have to buy your tickets online to try to reduce the amount of people that are touching things, to try to use more credit cards, scanning so we don't have to take things from people. Um, the biometric uh, time and attendance system we had requires that you put in pin codes that had to be changed to make it a swipe with your card so you don't have to touch things of that nature. So the technology really went into ticket sales, um, visitor screening uh, were the primary things that we did. And the new thing we did, of course, was the uh, visitor temperature check, which we presume will be a for a period of time and only brought out should we have other epidemics of this nature. Um, because that also is folded into our security weapon screening and it, it does make for more complicated entrance. The last point I'd like to make is I think what Keith alert, uh, alluded to is irrespective of the actual benefit of the temperature screening, it, it did make the public and the staff feel very, very secure we got lots of compliments, even if it was a little bit of a backlog to get your temperature taken. The public appreciated it. We got a lot of compliments on it and it did reassure staff and the public. It was well worth the effort just for that one benefit, as well as the fact that you, while we have not detected anybody so far that we've had to uh, leave, it, it was beneficial in the long run because it did make people comfortable and people were uncomfortable coming back out after being home for five months, staff and visitors. So it really, really worked out well. Yeah. Keith, you're nodding your head. You, you, you find the same at the Met? Oh, absolutely. Tom, spot on. And um, the, the one thing, you know, uh, uh, I think all of our organizations uh, grapple with is how do you provide a safe and secure environment and be welcoming? And in some circles that might be counterintuitive. 
So uh, to, to Tom's point, uh, we wanted to make sure that all the protocols that were in place were uh, uh, as non-invasive as possible, uh, but also allowed uh, our, our, our visitors, our internal stakeholders, our external stakeholders to come in with confidence and feel uh, strong, you know, strongly about uh, the uh, protocols that were in place. And Lisa, how about at, the, at Lincoln Center? What are the, some of the specific changes you've made there and how have those changes sort of played out as you've started reopening different parts of the campus? Right, and you know, we're using a, a device to do temperature checks, as I said, and since we have so many different populations coming on campus, uh, as we all do, we have the public, we have students of, of the Juilliard and the SAB, as I mentioned, and we have uh, employees. And it's important that each of those feel safe in their own venue, if you will. So we've done a lot more separation and you know, separate entrances, a lot more streamlining of how, what the ingress and egress looks like, and of course, uh, like we all said, the temperature screening and the, and the health questionnaire. The temperature screening, and like Tom said, we weren't sure if that was going to be worth it or not, but it, not only is it worth it, because it, it also discourages anyone who might have a temperature from coming, but everyone feels better knowing that, okay, no one's here without having at least had a temperature check and gone through this initial health screening. And, I think it became, even though at the beginning we're like, should we do this or should we not? It became well worth it once we moved forward with it. Got it. And, and um, Tom, you were mentioning this. I want to I pick up on it. Is there's, um, there's so much information, in some sense, there's so much information out there. It's hard to sort through sort of what, what you should follow, what you should do. There's so many different companies pitching their, whatever it is, their thermal screening or whatever their, uh, technology or device or approaches. I'm sure there's consultants that have come out that say they can tell you how to reopen. Um, you talked about the three of these or your organizations and potentially some others in New York sort of working together. What are some of the suggestions you would have for others in terms of helping to sort through, um, you know, what are the right technologies or people to talk to, right? What is, to the extent it's truth, you know, what can be more truthful out there? How can they learn from one, other, one another? What are the types of resources that they can then use or some of the things you guys have done to try to figure out, you know, what path to go down. Yeah, that's a bit of a challenge for new technologies that are being rushed to the market, so to speak, to, to, to handle something that nobody really anticipated. So there's not a lot of white papers out there. There are some that we could look at, but the main source we had, aside from having the manufacturers bring it into the building, set it up, and we tested it, which we did for quite a number of things. And very quickly, you can see whether it's effective or efficient. The, the primary source was to reach out to our colleagues. To what is Keith doing? What are you using? What is Bill de Blasio, not Bill de Blasio, Larry de Blasio using with respect to cameras and things? If you can find people that are using a product, that's your best source to reach out to them. How is that product working? What do you like about it? What did it cost? And we did that for quite a lot of institutions in the city, and in fact, some in other states. Uh, and that's how we kind of landed on what systems we're going to use. Uh, EVOB also was very helpful with respect to thermal imaging because it's something they had been looking at and were aware of even prior to the, the pandemic. Um, but it's a little hard when you're dealing with emerging technologies to get a real quick and easy answer. Best if you can do is you can reach out to people that are using a technology. That's going to be your best bet for trying to find out if it's effective. Keith, do you have anything to add to that in terms of helping to sort through what's the right technology? What are different things that should, should, should be looked at? What's some practical experience out there that, that you and your team could rely on? 
No, I, I concur with what Tom uh, just uh, stated. Um, benchmarking, and, and that's the best way. I, I, I would submit, and Tom can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but for the six months that we were closed, uh, our respective uh, uh, constituency, we were on the phone with one another for probably uh, every day of the week for those six months. I think we wore each other out. Uh, but that just goes to show you how strong the partnerships uh, are here in this city. And more importantly, the strategic alliances that we have with the uh, New York City Office of Emergency Management and uh, the uh, Police Department and Fire Department as well. Uh, they, they provided significant support and, and insight, if you will, uh, to help us during the, during the closure. But I, I concur with everything that uh, Tom and Lisa uh, just uh, talked about. And Lisa, I know Lincoln Center is the largest performing arts center, I believe, in, in the world. I know it's viewed as a, as a leader by many others. Did you connect with other performing arts centers or a, an organization or, or institution that helped sort of coordinate and share information? Sure. The, there's a performing arts consortium, PAC, that, and they actually did a, a guidelines early on that we were able to use also to kind of um, check to be sure what, you know, what are we missing here? You know, what kind of formats are people thinking about? And it was very thorough. What we came to realize very quickly in this is that when you're backstage in any performing arts institution, people are just really packed in there. And all of a sudden, you know, people don't even have one foot between them, much less six feet. So we did realize very early on that we're not gonna be able to open the backstage of performing arts institutions for quite a while. So it helped us also then to focus on the outdoors. And I will say that, that Lincoln Center is in a bit of a, um, a unique position because we're renovating a, one of our largest halls, David Geffen Hall right now. And so this also made us take a right turn on our renovation plans to say, what should we be thinking with technology to make this, you know, plan for a pandemic that might happen, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now with better ventilation systems and better touchless systems. And we have really started incorporating these new technologies and this pandemic planning in our building plans as well. And one of the things that we hear a lot about is contact tracing. Um, it, it's a, it, it can help sort of potentially reduce sort of widespread exposure. I think from what I've heard, this, it's complex. It's, it's challenging to actually implement a proper con contact tracing sort of protocol. Um, Lisa, Keith, Tom, have, have you guys implemented anything around contact tracing? It's probably easier for us because we don't have all the guests that the other museums have. But I will say that our employee, you know, our entrances all have this device that you have to do the health questionnaire on your phone and submit. And so everybody who comes into our building, we have their name and contact information. So if we had an outbreak, you know, we have everyone, we keep it for two weeks to know who has been in our building for the last two weeks. Keith, have you, have you been implementing either contact tracing or this this sort of health pass idea, which is, is related to it, as Lisa mentioned. Yeah, it's similar to the protocol that Lisa just uh, uh, articulated. Uh, obviously, we have uh, uh, a protocol in place for, um, you know, our staff and uh, volunteers and, and, and uh, um, you know, other internal stakeholders. Um, but we also, you know, leverage uh, an external uh, protocol, if you will, uh, to help us with the visitors, uh, you know, through the uh, visitor uh, experience team. And Tom, how about, how about at the Museum of Natural History? Yes, we have a contact tracing program that's managed by human resources, but it's for employees, not for visitors. Uh, we have, uh, and we had to update 
all employees um, emergency contact numbers and names because employees frequently change. That was how to be done. And there was a formal process really aimed at if, um, if an employee shows symptoms or if he's diagnosed with it or he's in contact with a family member that is with it, then there's a process in the museum to determine who that person in the museum was in close association with for periods of time. And then that person is contacted and then there's decisions made whether they need to be quarantined at home or, or whatever it might be. The only other thing we did was all employees have to have temperature uh, screening. It's, just, it's uh, through the use of an app. And that if obviously if they have any of the symptoms or a series of symptoms, we would be aware of it and then they have to stay home. So that was how we did, but we don't, don't have the ability to do any contact tracing of business coming in as restaurants are required to do because there's smaller numbers. So we, and we've not had yet since we've been open any visitor coming in where we learned later that they had it, nor have we had any, fortunately, staff that have come down with the symptoms yet. But if they do, we do have a contact tracing program for staff. So we've talked a lot about different um, technologies and tactics that have been put in place to make uh, the, the, your institution safer, reduce the public health risk, whether it's the ticket timing ticketing or touch the screening or thermal uh, cameras or whatnot. Um, it's fundamentally being done to keep people safe, right? To keep whether it's your staff or your, your uh, visitors and guests that are coming through there. So I'd like to just hear from each of you a little bit about the human impact. And Tom, maybe we'll start with you. You, you have you know, thousands and thousands of people that traditionally come to the museum. Traditionally, there are a lot of international uh, visitors there as well. So things like signage and protocols that may be different here from where they might be um, coming from. But can you just talk a little bit about the impact on your visitors um, and guests that come into the museum? How are they feeling? What are the kinds of things you see differently now than from six months and 12 months ago? Well, I think like our fellow institutions, the feedback from the visitors has been very, very strong, very high because we limit the numbers that come in. Uh, there is a significant amount of um, social distancing signage everywhere. Some narrow corridors are one way. Some high touch areas are temporarily closed. While we were closed for so many months, the, the entire building was so deep cleaned and disinfected, floor shine. So when you walk in, the place is pristine. And I'm sure that's true at the Met. And when people walk in and they see a clean place where they see signage posted, they see staff wearing masks, they see staff complying, and they see staff being very welcoming, we've got nothing but positive reactions. And I think the visitors are very assured when they come in that they're in as safe a place as possible. For staff, the same thing, except we did a formal training program over a five-day period prior to opening to reassure the staff that the museum has done everything possible to make sure that they are safe and that they would understand the changes in the way we deal with visitors when they come back. And that really paid off. The staff coming back were, I think, nervous. They had some had been furloughed for five months. And the training program developed by human resources and the other departments really turned out to be a very valuable way of reassuring staff. Uh, and it was well worth the significant effort that was involved in creating the, the training program. It was a significant training program. It went on for a couple of days. Keith, how about the Metropolitan Museum of Art? What has the impact been on, on both your staff and the, the guests? And as Lisa said, she was one of those that came through, um, right? What was the impact? How, how, what are you seeing? Well, I have to pay Lisa for that endorsement uh, going forward, and I really appreciate her perspective. You know, like, like all the organizations uh, represented here, 
you know, our, our, our visitors, you know, our patrons, our staff, they're the lifeblood of your organization and, and the institution. And so uh, clearly they have to feel comfortable coming back. Uh, and trust me, just like Tom and Lisa both alluded to earlier, I'm quite sure there was significant fear and trepidation, you know, uh, when the doors reopened. Um, but I think the best feedback that we've received uh, from our, our visitors is the fact that, you know, the Met normally averages anywhere from 15,000 to 25,000 visitors a day. That's gone down significantly to about 4,000. The visitor's response is the experience is so, uh, it feels like it's a private showing almost. And so that is worth its weight in gold in of itself, just to have the, uh, our visitors walk away with, they feel special coming back to a, a place like this. Two, two million square feet can, can, can uh, compress pretty quickly when you have, you know, 15, 25,000 people a day uh, in, your, in your facility. And Lisa, how about, how about at Lincoln Center? What have you seen there in terms of the impact? It's a little different. You have employees, obviously, but you have students, and it's a slightly different um, group given where you are in your reopening plans. Right, exactly. So the, the negative human impact is still being felt as far as artists and production staff are concerned. And, and we miss you know, our colleagues, just like you guys had furloughed employees for five months. We've had people who are still on furlough and with really no... Um, date that we know that we can come back as far as artists and production staff. We are excited to be able to do the limited amounts of things we can do on the plaza and we are very excited to welcome students back which are just happening right now in September and October and um, and we have the space to allow those few that are coming back like Keith just mentioned to spread out. We were able to have Juilliard students have special place on the plaza to enjoy you know, some studying space and some lunch space. But we are still a little bit grieving the fact that we can't do the performing arts and we can't have the artists back. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the near future. Um, there is still a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what happens with the virus rates. The vaccine um, scenario is still uncertain, you know, but hopefully at some point, you know, we'll be back to something that is closer to normal, but as you look out the next three and six and nine months, um, what do you see? How are you planning for it? How are you trying to continue to make your organizations resilient? Maybe Lisa, I'll, I'll stay with you if you can share what you're doing at Lincoln Center. Sure, well, like I mentioned, uh, we're doing this major renovation and we're really trying to be forward looking on how to make that a safer place to gather. Um, and we are making plans to do as much outdoors as possible in the spring because we think that we, you know, frankly, we all feel safer. We are all safer outside. So what we can offer next spring uh, on our campus, we're going to make strong plans to do outside because we don't really think we're gonna feel comfortable indoors until um, a number of us can be vaccinated as far as in a, in a performing arts setting because you're sitting there, you're stagnant, you're around people. Um, and it's just not an environment that is recommended at this time. So yeah, our view is look outside, do everything we can do outside, and then plan for gray reopenings, but probably not until many of us can be vaccinated. Keith, what do you see at the Met? How do you see it unfolding potentially over the next few months? Well, Neil, one of the things we started is, is a pretty robust after action process. And it's a perpetual after action process because this, this uh, pandemic isn't over, um, but we're taking the lessons that we've learned thus far to help us with our planning efforts going forward. Um, uh, just to echo something that Lisa just said, uh, incorporating certain things that we've learned 
into the construction projects as well as any of the uh, enhancements that we're doing security-wise, taking, to, to, taking into account that uh, the world's going to be a little bit different going forward. And so we have to incorporate these things in our strategies, but, uh, but that's where we are. And Tom, how about you at the American Museum of Natural History? How do you, how do you see things unfolding over the next few months? Well, there's two things. The first would be, we would love to increase our visitor attendance for many purposes, including revenue. Um, we are somewhat constrained by the government regulation system where we can go from 25% to 50% or longer. Um, as we get uh, approval to go higher in the, um, in the visitation rates, that will then put some stress on our one-way corridors and some of the closures we have. It will also put some stress on the enforcement we have of the social distancing rules when we get more people. So that's something that we're thinking about how to handle. The other thing I think we'll see going forward, we'll see more Zoom meetings. People are getting used to them. They're convenient. You don't have to walk two acres across the campus to get to a meeting. Um, I think we're going to see continued and probably increased um, online tours of the museum online educational because we are a big educational organization so a lot of the programs we offer that can't be done on site are being offered online and i think we'll see the digital tours and the digital stuff continue and increasing because it is fairly effective i think those are the two things that i think for the for the foreseeable future we'll see until we get back to a normalcy and when that will happen when everything goes away nobody knows but i think the thinking most people is we're, we're talking about way into next year before things get anywhere close to being normal it would be wonderful if they have vaccines and treatment plans that will accelerate that so we have to stay positive we try to tell staff to be positive about this this will come to an end sometime but we also have to be realistic that it could be a lot longer than we all would like to see yeah and Lisa, I know there's been some creative things that you've done at Lincoln Center. I, I, I think I've seen to bring some performances sort of out into the city. Could you talk about some of the different things you've done? Sure. Yeah, the New York Phil did the uh, Philharmonic Bandwagon, which kind of did pop-up performances around town, literally from the back of a pickup truck. So that's a lot of fun. And, we, you know, so what we do is try and do some things where we can have 40 people or less spread out outside. Um, the ballet is doing some amazing choreography on the campus right now that they'll incorporate into their digital season. Um, Lincoln Center did, does a lot of education as all of these institutions do. And so we did these pop-up classrooms really to help parents and teachers have some curriculum and some fun musical and performing arts um, classes throughout the summer and, and into the fall. So I think we're all trying to enrich the lives of our constituencies um, as much as we can without all getting together and breathing on each other. <laughs> and Keith, how about you at the Met? I'm sure you've done some things to bring your art out to the community in different ways. Uh, yet here they have a very significant digital program um, uh, and the entire collection, uh, as encyclopedic as it is, is offered uh, digitally. Uh, so the, uh, the uh, digital team and um, the uh, uh, special exhibition team, they've been partnered up to you know, uh, make that presentation uh, pretty much more robust than it has been in the past. So um, they continue to evolve that and uh, it's been receiving um, huge accolades. Great. 
So um, as we sort of start to, to think uh, and wrap this up, the, the discussion has been very, very uh, informative, very interesting uh, to me. I find it interesting um, about things that will change in the future, things that we've done differently that may sort of endure beyond. So I'd be very curious for each of you to talk about one of the changes that may have been uh, driven by or inspired by COVID that you think sort of once we're beyond this, once we have the virus under control and at that point in the future that we're all looking forward to, you think will endure, you think is an un unintended benefit of, of what we've gone through. Um, Tom, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, well, yes, there will be some that go forward. I think our, our visitor screening coming in will probably be altered to, to stay more contactless even if the COVID goes away because it's just nicer and more user friendly. I think some of the restrictions we put in with respect to locker room use and limiting the number of people in locker rooms and in break rooms and common areas will probably continue because while it was done because of government regulations and social distancing, it also had the impact of taking areas that tended to be very crowded and making them more pleasant for staff. And it also resulted in our finding other areas where people would take breaks, for example. I think we'll probably continue with that because it's nicer to have more room for your breaks and less people in your locker room. It's just a more pleasant experience. So I think even when the pandemic goes away, we'll probably continue to do that. Some of that was staggering dress times and changing shifts slightly. We'll probably continue doing that because it made for a more comfortable environment for the staff and for the managers that are running those operations. What else continues aside from probably more Zoom meetings and things of that nature, there will be some working at home will continue for a period of time and maybe permanently. Uh, that's pretty much what I can see at the moment, but who knows, there may be things around the corner that we're not even yet prepared for that may change that result and result in continued something we're doing now. I think the hall restrictions will probably go away because they, they do restrict people's quiet enjoyment of the museum. So some of the one-way paths and limitations at certain dioramas, I think when we can safely have them go away, we will because it increases the quiet enjoyment of the, of the public. Great. Lisa, how about at Lincoln Center? What, what do you think will endure there? You know, we've had to, uh, they'd say necessity is the mother of invention. So with a lot of furloughs and layoffs, we've had to streamline some of our processes and use technology wiser just in our administrative processes. So I think that will continue. We'll just try and say, you know, what were we doing before that maybe we didn't have to do? Or what are we, what are we doing smarter now um, that we have to because we have less people? Um, so we're really taking a hard look to say, you know, where we can find those areas to streamline and make the whole back of the office, if you will, um, work smarter. Great. And Keith, how about at the Met? What, what'll, what'll continue on? You know, I, I can only just say ditto to everything that has been said already, but uh, the concept that will endure will be the spirit of commitment, uh, the spirit of community and engagement. Uh, I think uh, that will endure. Uh, I, I think there is a strong, strong uh, um, urge and desire by the uh, by the staff here to make sure that we put uh, all in 150 percent to make sure we ha we provide our our visitors with the best experience. That's great. Thank you, Keith. I mean, one thing that is clear to me after uh, this session is each of you and your organizations, and then your organizations together, have been tremendously collaborative, Keith. As you just said, I mean, it's really nice to see. Uh, I'm a New Yorker. I was born there. I lived there. It's great to see sort of New York coming back, but it's great to see 
people getting together and helping figure this out together. And, you know, here we're talking about institutions in New York, but, you know, I'm hoping that happens in Miami and Chicago and LA and sort of all over the country, not just within their cities, but with each of, each of their uh, sort of colleagues across the US because it's, it's hard, it's a dynamic environment, it's changing very frequently, and there's a lot of really good lessons that have been learned and, and are shared. And that's one of the things we're trying to do with this series. So um, I wanna thank Keith, Lisa, and Tom for your time, for your insights that you shared here. Um, it really is amazing to think about all the factors and all the factions you've balanced to try to navigate and help navigate your organizations through this and to reopen uh, and to get people back into your venues and to get smiles on people's faces again. So thank you for all that you've done there and for sharing some of that with us here today. Um, and I wanna thank each of you that's listening for the work you're doing to keep people safe, to try to create a, an experience where they can get back to your specific institutions, whether it's employees or guests or visitors or fans or staff or, or students or whomever it is um, it's very hard work, but we all want to get back to, to being, you know, living our lives, frankly. So thank you to each of you out there listening. And finally, stay safe and stay healthy and never stop keeping your venues safe and making it enjoyable for people to, to come and, and visit them. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. To participate in a live recording of future episodes, visit digitalthreshold.com.